You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks direct from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Climate change is often spoken about as an abstract problem, used as a political device by people far removed from the day-to-day reality of rising waters and increasing temperatures. Conversations about global warming can often feel distant from our daily lives. So, at All About Women 2018, we invited two warriors for climate justice to share their experiences of what's happening right now in their communities. In a panel called Disappearing Islands, acclaimed spoken word poet Kathy Jetnell Kijner from Marshall Islands joined climate activist Ursula Rakova from Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. They were with journalist Jacqueline Maley to discuss what action we can take to save our planet. We're here today to hear wisdom from these two women who are at the very battlefront of the fight against climate change. To these women, climate change is not an abstract problem that's argued over about by politicians and the commentariat. To them, it is absolutely real. It's happening right on their doorsteps, it's happening right now, and it's threatening their homelands. And both of these women have turned to community activism as a way of fighting climate change. I'm going to ask um, both of the women uh, to talk a little bit about themselves and introduce themselves, and I think Ursula has a presentation um, that she's going to show us, and then I'm going to ask them some questions, and then I will throw it open to you guys to ask the questions um, that I've forgotten. And then at the end, we have a really special treat, which is that uh, Cathy is going to read a poem for, for us, one of her own spoken word poems. Um, so, uh, Cathy, I might ask you first to tell us about yourself and the kind of work that you do. Uh, my name is Kathy Jidangil Kitchener. Um, I'm from the Marshall Islands. Um, the Marshall Islands is located in the northern Pacific region, known as Micronesia. And um, it's made up of 60 coral, about 64 coral atolls. Um, and we're a low-lying atoll nation that is considered on the front lines of climate change, one of the few nations that's uh, one of the first to disappear due to the rising sea level. So the work that I do is um, I am a poet, primarily. I'm a poet and a writer, and I write about climate change and amongst other things, nuclear testing as well, um, and issues that are affecting my people. Uh, I use spoken word as a medium to deliver that message to people because I've seen it as a powerful tool that can connect with audiences. Besides that, I also run a nonprofit back home in the Marshall Islands called Jyotigum, which is a nonprofit um, that is dedicated to empowering Marshallese youth to, uh, to seek solutions to climate change and other environmental issues. So it's kind of a training and mentorship program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think... So I'm trying to think if there's anything else I do. And then I also, I also teach writing workshops. So I also teach writing workshops uh, to, across the board. Um, I've done writing workshops with Rhodes Scholars and high school students in Portland and Arkansas and in Palau and in the Marshall Islands, of course. And it's all about getting them to connect to the issue of climate change through mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. So I think... That is about it. Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> and you also have a four-year-old, so that yes, I have right. a four-year-old. Um, I have a four-year-old daughter, and she is currently in Oregon, where we are based right now. Um, and I was born in the Marshall Islands, but I was raised in Hawaii. So I know that there's quite a few people who might be like, "Well, she doesn't have. She has an American accent." Yes. So it's because of the fact that I was raised in Hawaii, and then I moved back home, and that's when I first became introduced to the issue of climate change and saw how vulnerable my country was, and that's 
you know, as I always do, I turn to writing to understand the issue, and that's how I got into this work. We're gonna. We're, I want to quiz you later on um, your poetry and why you sort of chose that as a medium. Um, but Ursula, tell us about yourself, your background, where you come from, and the work that that you do. Um, <coughs> good evening, everyone. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> uh, my name is Ursula Rakova, and I come from a small. Um, uh, group of atolls um, on the north southwest uh, Pacific cartridge in Bougainville, Papua New Guinea. Um, so we are Melanesians, but the other atolls are Polynesian people. Um, I started work um, helping my people in 2006. Um, previously, I worked for Oxfam New Zealand in Bougainville. And the chief and elders were seeing the um, impacts of what was happening on the island, and they asked if I could help. So that was when I started to help. Uh, we actually are moving people from the atoll to Bougainville. Um, and I think we are advantaged in a way that we have a bigger island we can move to. Mm. Um, so the work is continuing, and we've just started to uh, relocate 10 families to our first site. We have other three sites remaining where we need to move our people to. So that was when my work started. And I'm also from the island, so. <laughs> <laughs> I felt obligated to help. Ursula, do you want to do your presentation now? Is that convenient to you? Ursula's just going to show us a little bit about a map of where she comes from and so we can all kind of visualise it. So that's where, that's the island I come from and it's a, a, a ring of, um, it's a secular uh, form and uh, all the islands kind of sit on top of the reef. Um, it's not so much, it's 1.2 metre above sea level. Um, Cartridge is to the northeast of Bougainville Island, north of Papua New Guinea, and northern tip of Australia. So you can see where we are neighbors, very, very next door neighbors. <coughs> so what it, it meant for us, um, we just couldn't sit, sit around and wait for help to come, so uh, we got organized. Why? Because our shorelines are eroding so fast. Um, just two months ago, we had a sea that washed over one of the islands and all the water went into the homes because we build our homes on the sand. Um, and when the, the water went in, the sea water went in, uh, a few days later, all the garden um, food turned yellow, the leaves turned yellow. And basically, there's nothing we can do. Um, I also know that um, <clears throat> a lot of people have asked, so why are you moving? Um, as much as we, we want to contain or continue to live um, our heritage and live where we are, uh, it is beginning to become impossible for us, the islanders, to continue to live on those islands. Mm. Um, so we have lost a lot of our land uh, due to solar erosion, maybe 50 to 60 meters. Mm. 
And you can see the picture where the young man is standing. That was where the island was, but it, it's gone so much further in. Apart from the sea eroding our shorelines, we, we do have incidences where um, a lot of our boats, um, banana boats, as you can see, this is our mode of transportation. And it, it, it's allowed to carry eight passengers. But, you know, it's, it's our only means of transportation, so 20, 25 people can get on this. And we've lost a lot of our boats as well. Um, between 2000-2017, we had 15 boats that, went, um, that got lost. Seven of those boats um, were found, but a lot of them were not found, and people were lost. They, 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 we never found them again. We, <clears throat> we have tried to build sea walls um, to buffer the, the intruding salt water into the land. Mm. A lot of these sea walls are being broken up. The currents are too strong. Uh, we've, We've also got, go, uh, gone into planting mangroves to see if we can contain, continue to contain the land. But the mangroves are also being eaten by the fish. And a lot of the mangroves have been uprooted because of the strong currents. Um, there is no land, next, no, no mountains next door to buffer. Um, whatever we, we can grow, like mangroves from the seas. And even at the back of the island where we have stones, those stones are being broken by the strong currents, you know, sea washes over this, the, the walls every day, um, they are going as well. In 2006, 2009, we we started to talk to people. We, we made them aware of what was happening. Um, people knew um, the sea was um, encroaching on our land, but they blamed it on, on other things. Uh, they didn't really know what, they, what was happening. And in a lot of times they said, oh, um, the, the spirits are angry with us because we, we are not doing right. And, and I think it's true to it. <clears throat> To an extent, the spirits, our ancestors were angry with us because we probably weren't, weren't protecting the land. So we, we had to sit down with women. Being a matrilineal society, we, we, we needed to talk to the women. So like, if you decide to move or if you do not want to move, what are you going to do to feed your kids if you don't want to move? And if you move, what are you going to do? How will you pass on the land? Because... Being a matriarchal society, we, the, daughters, the mothers have to pass on the land to us, and then we pass it on to our daughters, and so on. And in this case, if we have to move, um, who takes the title to the land? And so in, in, our, um, in our new location, um, I've been encouraging women to, to play a stronger role in, in making sure that you know, they, um, they are connected to the, to the land that we, we are giving to them. Mm. 
So in 2007, because we, 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 didn't, um, we didn't have a successful relocation program in Papua New Guinea or even in Bougainville that we could learn from. So we, we developed our own. And it's, this is what we have developed. It's, it's not so inclusive, but we, we are trying to review that as we go. Um, and we now know that the other communities in Bougainville also, um, atolls of Bougainville, perhaps can learn from our process. And maybe even in Papua New Guinea, because they do not have a process, relocation pro process. So we hope they can also learn from our process. We, we are not saying it's a, you know, a ship safe process, but we have actually gone through the process we are learning as we go. Uh, so just to show you what we've done. So this is how our new village looks like. It, it's a home, uh, three-bedroom house uh, for families. It has a water tank and it has a loan. Um, and each family is given uh, one hectare of land where they can grow their food crops and where they can also grow their cash crops. Um, the land, by the way, was gifted to us by the Catholic Church in Bougainville. So what have we done? Um, because of the one hectare land that we give for food, food gardens, uh, food crops and cash crops, um, the community themselves also um, have developed a, a small roster where they help each other. Like every day they work for one hour just helping each other and, and doing that. And so we are able to uh, plant cocoa uh, as a cash crop, coconut as a cash crop to, to earn an income. The organization that I work for has um, five staff, including me. Um, and we, um, we get a lot of uh, funding from organizations and foundations um, overseas, internationally. But we also grow our own food um, when finance is not there, we basically turn to our food garden as well, the staff. And um, the organization also has um, cocoa trees and coconut trees where we intend to continue the relocation program where we can earn an income to finance the program itself. Uh, just an example of what we, we are doing. Um, we are able to get an income from copra, dried coconuts, as well as cocoa. We, we do have a cocoa dryer way. We have been maintaining ourselves, um, getting a small income. So that's our dryer. We do have partnerships, um, but especially with uh, women in the host community. Often we've been asked to help with trainings and 
things like that. Um, the picture you can see on the top is actually a visit by the um, ambassador for women and girls, the Australian ambassador for women and girls. So we welcome, we um, got the other women from the host community into our community and we, we welcome the delegation. Um, the picture, um, the bottom picture shows women just uh, participating in, our, in some of our workshops. Um, another outreach program where we are now trying to get the young people to understand climate change and its impact. Um, and what we are doing uh, is basically targeting schools, secondary schools in Bougainville. Um, and out of the out of the climate change roadshow to schools, we were able to, um, with the students, um, identify 30 students that we want to work with and, and build up their capacity. So um, they are also um, advocating on climate change. Um, uh, some of, some, some of the, the, the two pictures show that. But we also want to get them exposed to other young people internationally so that they are learning as much as they can. And one of the outcome of the roadshow is um, for us as an organization to, um, to look at some of the uh, syllabus on climate change that have been done elsewhere so that we can incorporate that into grades 11 and, and 12 in, in our Bougainville schools. Eventually later on, maybe the education department in Papua New Guinea can do that as well. Um, this is the bulk of our community in our new uh, location, um, but we actually want to look at markets outside to export our dried cocoa beans. Um, we know that we cannot export copra because we, we have um, uh, factories back in, in Bougainville, but we still want to export our dried cocoa beans overseas so we can get a premium for, that, for the cocoa. Um, so it's not just the relocated families we are working with. We're also working with the host community and other farmers in Bougainville. Um, but we also, um, one of the things we want to do with the relocated families is to really get them to be decisive in managing their own income, the small income that they are able to pick up. Um, so these are our needs. Um, we still need to get two of these houses completed. We have 15 more houses in the second site. We have 16 more houses in the third site, and we have 20 more houses in our third <clears throat> site. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Ursula. Thank you so much for that, Ursula. Um, I wanted to ask you, as, a, as an opener, what was it that led you to become an activist? You have these problems in your community, the, the, the emergency is very clear, but why did you take it upon yourself to lead the change? Um, the chief and elders from my island community actually asked me, so... Um... <laughs> so you were, you were called? <laughs> Yeah, they kind of forced me to resign. <laughs> um, and do you do you take to the role reluctantly, or do you enjoy it? Um, well, be, 
being an activist in Papua New Guinea and working in other parts of the provinces in Papua New Guinea, um, I kind of felt it was time to really um, provide support and home down on my, on my people because like one of the comments they said was, you helped, um, you helped Papua New Guineans. Now you are helping Bougainvilleans. What are you doing for us? So um, in shame and being, being a, a, an upcoming leader, woman leader then at that time, I had to think about the welfare of my daughter is mm. um, the new um, inheritance to my, um, to whatever I own on the island. I actually own one of the islands. Mm. Yeah, well, I, and I want to talk about that later as well because um, in both of your countries, uh, it's a matrilineal society and it's matriarchal in the sense that the women are the traditional owners, which is really interesting and very different <laughs> to how we do things here. Um, uh, Kathy, I want to ask you, tell us a little bit about the Marshall Islands and the actual effects that you see day to day that climate change has on your islands. Well, um, it's actually really, this is my first time meeting Ursula and hearing the story of her work and what's going on in the Carteret Islands. And I see a lot of parallels, but also uh, some differences. And so some of the parallels I see is that um, we are also about two meters above sea level, so we're incredibly low-lying atoll nation. There's no mountains. Some parts of the islands are so thin that you can feel ocean spray on either side of you when you stand in the middle of the road. Wow. Um, and so for us, uh, unlike Carteret, uh, the Carteret Islands, however, we don't have a larger island to go to. Mm. So all of our islands are, are that, mm. are that small. Mm. Um, some islands are as big as this room. Some islands are as big as this opera house, and mm. that's as big as it gets. You know? <laughs> so um, we have no place else to go. And mm. I think that's the marked difference um, that is making our country fight uh, to not have to move uh, from our islands because of the fact that we know we won't have any place to go to. Um, so, I, as far as effects, the main effects is uh, king tide um, flooding. Mm. And so, because of the fact that we're so low to the, to the water, every time there's a high tide or what we call a king tide, she mentioned it earlier in her presentation, mm. um, all of this, like, it's different kind of... Um, different kinds of things, uh, like there's a storm nearby or a typhoon nearby, it'll result in these huge waves crashing over our walls and crashing into our homes and displacing people. And so within the past like five years, we've had as many as four floodings per year. Right. And in, just in January alone, we had another flooding um, where four homes were displaced. And so people are having to move from their homes and they're losing their houses. I saw my cousin lose her house. Mm. And... Um, and it's, it's, it's becoming common. And I've talked to a lot of my elders, ask them, you know, has this happened when you were growing up? And they all say the same thing. They've never seen it this yeah. bad before. Yeah. Um, besides the, the floodings and losing our homes, you know, the salt dries out our crops. And then we also have came out of one of the worst droughts we've ever seen. Mm. Um, like, I think it was two years ago that we had the worst drought we've ever seen. People were literally fighting over water. Right. And so, you know, we have to remember that this is a third world, na considered a third world nation. Mm. You know, our minimum wage is like two fifty an hour and people are already struggling as it is. Mm. Climate change is making life harder. Mm. Um, and so these are the kind of the main issues that we're tackling right now. We've, we've done, we've been proactive in a lot of ways that, you know, are similar to the Carter Islanders in the sense that we're looking at our own, you know, food, um, food security and also looking at solar. We've solarized almost all of our outer islands and mm. we're working on solarizing our main island. Um, 
And we're, we're sounding the call as much as we can internationally to make sure that countries are taking the steps needed to, you know, uh, to save our homes, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. And tell us, how did you find your way into activism and, and why did you choose poetry as a particular medium um, to deliver your message? Well, I was already, I've, I've written poetry pretty much, you know, since my whole life and I think I've always just enjoyed it. Um, when I was in college in like California, I learned that poetry could could speak to a movement. You know, it could it could change people. It can talk about um, issues that are affecting your people at that moment. Um, I learned from African American writers, from Latina writers, from you know, and I, I saw the power that it could hold. And I think. Then when I moved back home, I moved back home in 2006, that's when I saw how vulnerable we are. Mm. And that's when I became really panicked about mm. climate change and I started realizing, whoa, this is a real issue. Mm. And then I experienced my first flooding and um, it was really scary to mm. see how vulnerable we are. And, um, and, that's kind of, and then just a poem came out one day and that's kind of how it all started. I put it up on YouTube later. Um, recognizing that my people tend to be more oral mm. and we respond to more oral traditions rather mm. than the written word. And so um, I recognize the power of media and social media and I kind of tapped into that. Mm. Um, and so that's how I use, yeah, that's how I, that's what I do basically, yeah. And in 2014, you spoke to the UN Climate Leaders Summit um, and in New York, I think, and you brought your baby on stage, which was yeah. a really powerful moment. You gave this incredible poem. Um, tell us a little bit, I want to talk about political leadership. Mm -hmm. um, what is your experience, both of your experience, of political leadership globally on this issue right now at this moment? Thank you. <clears throat> I, I think... Um, the political will um, globally um, is there, but it needs to be more action needs to be done. Mm. Um, we've, we've had enough of rhetorics. We, we can't continue to plan anymore. Mm -hmm. um, some people can plan because you know, they live in continents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very hard for us to, to continue to plan when we're actually facing it. Mm. Um, so we all work, we all need to work together and, and there's, there's got to, need to be more action mm. and it's got to be fast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think, um, Ursula, do you think the political leadership in Australia is strong enough on this issue? It could be stronger. Mm. <laughs> I think the crowd's got some opinions on that. <laughs> Even in Papua New Guinea, we, we, hardly, um, we hardly have been getting any support from them. They fail to recognize the, the fact that, you know, there's a community that's really right into it and, and have found a solution to it. Mm -hmm. So they should be supporting that solution. Mm -hmm. In Bougainville, they, rec they do not recognize what we are doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So the political will is nil. Mm -hmm. In Papua New Guinea, I mean in Papua New Guinea. Cathy, yeah. mm -hmm. can I get you to weigh on the political leadership globally and then in Australia as well, if you can comment on that. Yeah, well, the U I'm living in the U.S. right mm. now. I'm based in the U.S., so we all know what's going on there. Mm. <laughs> so it's pretty bad, and I think that um, it's... I mean, when he won, I just was completely devastated. Mm. I, I mm. knew what would, what would happen. I knew what his policies were, and mm. it's happening right now. You know, um, environmentalists are getting attacked. Environmental laws are getting attacked everywhere you turn, and it's sort of like whiplash. It's hard to keep up. But um, you know, at the same time, it spurred a lot of a lot of people to kind of 
to kind of rise to the challenge in a lot of different ways. And so that always gives me hope. But yeah, I, I don't think the political leaders are doing enough either. I totally agree with Ursula. Mm. And I mean, I know of Australia that I also agree that it can be stronger. I mean, I know that there, there's been a lot of... Um, I have friends who are in the movement to stop Adani, and mm. I've been learning a little bit more about that mm. and about the opening of the Adani coal mine. And that would really result in kind of a devastating effect on our islands in the rest of the right. Pacific, which is really kind of, um, it's, it's really sh troubling for me because of the fact that we share the same ocean with Australia. Mm. And, you know, we, the history teaches us that Australia is looked upon as almost an older brother in a mm. sense. Um, and and yet it's not taking the responsibility that it should to for the rest of us in the Pacific. Yeah. So I want to take this opportunity. If, if if there was one message that you could deliver to the political leaders, Australian political leaders, you're here in our country as our guests. What would it be? Well, I'll just make a comment. Mm. Like for Kathy uh, and I, we we come from Papua New Guinea and Marshall Islands. But there are also other Pacific Islands mm. that are going through the same fate. Mm -hmm. And um, my message to, 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 to Australia would be, um, you know, to support um, local solutions that are already um, being made by communities. Um, in Papua New Guinea, we have a governance, a huge governance issue. You know, this bilateral, uh, financing by Australia to Papua New Guinea. Mm. They, they should really be auditing what they are doing or how the support is going. So you're talking and, about is it sort of foreign aid? Cause yeah, and, 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 the... and more support should be directed to the communities right. mm. yeah. with less stringent criteria. So are you saying that a lot of the foreign aid or some of the foreign aid that Australia gives is sort of siphoned off via bad governance or corruption in Papua New Guinea and you wanted to see it go to the grassroots? Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Cathy, if you had one, one message for the political leaders in Australia... Well, Australia is not giving us funding at the moment, so I guess I would, I would focus on um, shifting to 100% renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Stop Adani. Yep. It's kind of as simple as it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to ask you both about um, your matrilineal societies. Mm -hmm. um, tell us how that works. What, what does that mean? What does it mean in the Marshall Islands, Cathy? Well, it's just the way Ursula had explained it. We inherit our land through our mothers as mm -hmm. well. So we trace our lineage and our land through our mothers. And so, like, I trace all... I have land in the Marshall Islands as well, and that all goes through um, my mother's side. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we talk about when we say that climate change will affect women's status as well, is mm -hmm. that we lose our source of power when we lose our land. Right. You know, and that's, that's difficult already to have in this day and age. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, a direct, tangible sort of uh, impact of climate change, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ursula, what's it like to live in a matrilineal society? Well, I, <clears throat> I make decisions. My brothers will orate that decision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, the, your brothers will respect mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and both of you, as well, are mothers. And, Cathy, you've used, you've, a lot of your poetry is around your baby or your little girl now. Um, has motherhood radicalised you? Has it made you stronger in your political commitment? Um, in a sense, it's sort of interesting. Um, I think that one of my most, the, the poem that I'm best known for, which I'll be sharing at the end of this, is, is, a, is my most hopeful poem. 
And I, you know, usually I write really angry poems, but that one was really hopeful because it's a, it's a letter written to my daughter. Mm. And I think that um, when you want to talk to your children, you want to give them hope for the future that things will change, that things will be better. You're not going to like yell at a baby, right? So <laughs> that's, so I guess in a sense, having her around has forced me to, to find hope, you know, to find that strength within myself that was, that we all find when we when we become mothers, right? You always discover when you become a mother, a hidden strength that you didn't know you had because you got to just dig and dig and mm. dig to be able to make it through those nights mm. so either way I, I think that that's what how she's affected me is that she forces me to find hope even when I feel like there's none Ursula mm. mm. has being a mother affected your activism no my my family supports me in the work I do mm -hmm. and I mean but do you look at the next generation do you look at your children and um and feel despair for what they're going to inherit? Do you worry for them? How, how has it affected your work? I don't worry too much about my two sons, but I do about my daughter because she will not have land like in 50 years' time. Yeah, right. right. Um, and we're going to throw open to um, the floor for questions in just a minute. But before I do that, I just want to ask you both one um, last question about you know your femininity. We're at an All About Women um, festival. Do you think that um, women bring something in particular and unique to activism that men perhaps don't? Cathy? It's hmm. um, a tough one. I guess, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, we bring a strength, we bring empathy. Um, I think that women are strong at certain roles and in certain tasks, you know, much stronger than men. But also, I mean, we're, we're representing a, a completely different perspective mm. than men, and I think that's something we have to recognize. And so, yeah, I think our voices are really necessary in this climate discussion, and, 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 and prioritizing gender as an issue that intersects with climate change is really important. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Ursula? All about women is, um, is, um, is vital in these states because we, we are sharing ideas. We are coming up with... Uh, what we are doing back home, and we, we are able to tell other sisters um, globally that this is what's happening. And together, um, women will take it back. Mm -hmm. They will take it back to wherever they are, to their communities. And little by little, I know things will happen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to happen at a larger scale at one time. Mm -hmm. It will happen slowly, slowly, and it's women doing it because they have more wisdom. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not degrading our brothers who are here, but it's women who will take these learnings back and mm. implement. Great. And on that note, maybe we'll get a, a female to ask the first question. <laughs> Go right ahead. Scary. Um, hi, I'm Jill from Canberra. Thank you both so much for um, your presentations and for explaining what's going on for you. Um, I did have a question specifically to Ursula, and it's about the social cohesion on the islands that people are moving to. Mm. Um, what's it like when you turn up on a new island in a new community and you have to manage the relationships between the new and, and the people who've traditionally been living on those islands? Thank you. We... Um on Bougainville, we have four main clans. Uh, so the clans on Bougainville are also the same on the island. Mm. And so we relate to each other through our clan uh, systems. So I'm, I'm, I, I do have relations on, 
on the new location that I am because of the clan systems that we have. The culture is not so different. That was why at the beginning I said we, we are advantaged in the sense that we are not moving uh, completely to a, a new location. It's just like 45, um, 86 kilometers away. And so our cultures are closely connected. And we do, um, we, we actually have done programs to, to kind of build relationships like the chief and elders exchange programs, the young people speaking and sharing experiences. Um, and we continue to do that. So we also encouraging in our program intermarriages, mm. which kind of binds this, mm. our communities together. Any more questions from the floor? Can we have a microphone? Oh, yeah. Um, right I was going to ask, Ursula, it looks like the community that you're, um, you know, forging in Papua New Guinea looks really positive, but I'm... Wondering what is it that you miss the most about your home? Mm. Uh, our new community is actually like we will be there. And, and in case there's a tidal wave on the island, we have a home to go to. Um, so we do miss swimming in the sea. We miss fishing, mm. especially our fish. Mm. Um, but we often return and and do fishing and come back to, to our new location. Hello, um, my name's Toe, I'm part Kiribati, and Kiribati are going through very similar challenges that uh, PNG and uh, the Marshall Islands are. I'm very interested to hear from your experiences around uh, empowering and inspiring children. When we're looking at education, what do you think are some common things that we need to be educating our children on? Um, for us, we um, our um, we bring in our elders from the island to to be with us in the community, and they stay for as long as they want. So, in a way, um, the young the younger generation are actually learning from these old people. But every Christmas, our community people return to the island because they sing sing this customary obligations they need to fulfill. So it, it's not like we have moved and we are going to stop there. We, we do commute back and forth. Cathy, mm. do you want, do you want oh, to take that one? Um, just about education mm. and how we teach. So we, we actually, our program has something called the Climate Change Arts Camp where we teach young people about the basics of climate change and then we bring them to see the effects themselves and then they create art. Um, they create murals, they create poetry, and that has seemed really effective actually because it sort of gives them a space to sort of take all these feelings of fear and anxiety and they sort of, and it's almost therapeutic to see how, what they create, you know, they transmute it into, onto the page and onto a, onto a, um, into a wall. And um, it's sort of getting their voices heard and I think it really empowers them actually. And so for me, my, my, the way I see um, education working is, is, is an intersection between the climate, climate change sciences and arts. I think that both of those work really well to getting ch children engaged in the issue. Yeah. Uh, Kathy, I'm just wondering how many Marshall Islanders have already relocated to the USA? 
Well, um, there isn't actually a number. Like at the moment, like there's a there's a large population of us living in the U.S., but for other reasons that aren't re necessarily related to climate change. There's, I, I only know of like maybe one or two families who would say they're doing it for climate change. None of us have relocated yet um, because we're still, you know, trying to hold on to the islands as long as we can. Um, but we've relocated for other issues. You know, the U.S. tested over 60 nuclear weapons in our islands, and so a lot of us have high cancer rates, and a lot of us are having to go to the U.S. for that, for job opportunities, for educational opportunities. And is the U.S. the main place that people from the Marshall Islands would emigrate to? So because of the fact that they tested, U.S. tested nuclear weapons on our islands and they have a military base in our islands, we have a, a relationship with the U.S. that allows us free entry. And so that's what we've discussed before, is like, is the U.S. a possibility for us to move? But, you know, our experiences in the U.S. has not been welcoming, to say the least. And so we're definitely concerned about that. So at the moment, no, that hasn't happened yet. But that is something that we're kind of considering and looking at, is what is this going to look like, you know, if we were to move there? So we're not there yet, with, uh, as Carteret Islanders are. Yeah. Mm. <coughs> um, any more questions? Up the back. Just a quick question. Um, in your new communities, you said the, the land had been gifted to you by the Catholic Church. Do any of the individuals who had title back on your own islands got replacement title in your new communities, or mm -hmm. who does the land belong to? The, the land belongs to the Catholic Church, and so we, uh, we are working with our lawyers to um, draft a deed for us, and Bishop is willingly... Um, has willingly agreed to sign so that we pick up the titles for the families. Mm, we might take one more question and then I think we'll get Cathy to do her poem because I think we're wrapping up at a quarter past. Uh, the timer. What's the... Oh, yeah, we've got about... No, we've got a little bit of time, yeah. Oh, good. Hello, my uh, question is for Ursula. Um, I lived in Papua New Guinea for four years, so I understand the social um, challenges that comes, you know, living in, in Port Moresby and Bougainville. Um, you mentioned that the land was gifted by the Catholic um, Church. What has been the response from the Papua New Guinea government and the Bougainville communities when you've approached them for um, any type of funding or help? <laughs> Uh, Papua New Guinea government says they have money for, to support uh, atolls and islands, but not for relocation. Oh. Wow. Wow. Yikes. Hi, this is for both of you. I was just wondering, are there other islands in the Pacific that are facing the same challenges, and can they, is there opportunities for you networking and supporting each other? Um, in this way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them are here. <laughs> yeah, so Kiribati, Tuvalu, um, yeah, I think those are the ones. Maldives. Says. Maldives, yeah. Um, we're not super connected to Maldives from what I understand, but the rest of the Pacific, we've been working, our governments work together from what I understand. There's like a small island, uh, what was it, uh, an AOSIS, yeah. Yes, um, so there's an alliance of small island states, basically, and that's kind of how we've been working together, is, is through that. Yeah. Um, right up the back, we got one, I think. 
Hi, my name's Theodora, and it's, it's been an interest of mine that I'm doing a paper on recently, is you mentioned it and you touched on it, the recent COP23, which was in Fiji, to bring attention, and you've mentioned there's all this rhetoric that happens, but the action isn't following up. Um, you know, most people here are probably aware, maybe, maybe not the COP23, but it didn't do a blip mm. in the general media. You know, it was brought into the Pacific to show exactly what's going on. How, we, how, how do we take that to the next step? I mean, you're doing the activism. How do we pick up what you're doing? How can, how can we got AISIS that brought that resolution on, which was huge, mm -hmm. you know, but where do we go from here to, to get the inaction? Because I can understand your frustration. The rhetoric's there and there's more speeches and talks. Yeah, what, what can we do? What can all the people in this room do to help the cause? <clears throat> I feel like there's grassroots activists and movements that are already existing in Australia that I know of, at least, you know, through friends who actually live here and organize. And I feel like, you know, tapping into those existing movements is a great way to support them because everybody's always going to be looking for more support. And so for me, it's not necessarily like sound the call for Marshall Islands. It's like focus on your government and focus on your movements and feel, and strengthen that because that's how you're going to affect and, and, and help our islands in the end is by focusing on your own country first. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I tend to think uh, more community-based work um, action is, um, is better than having to deal with it at a global scale because if we can do it first, then we can say, okay, we've done so much and we've spent so much. What can you do? Mm. We tell our governments, what can you do to support us? Um, we, we have been networking with uh, uh, some communities in Alaska. Mm -hmm. um, and in October, we'll be meeting the Pacific and the Alaskans. And we are trying to develop our, our voice, you know, like we, share, we will share our ideas and, and networking and experiences. And we want to tell our own governments, because in Alaska, it's all, you know, communities in Alaska are also facing the same. But they are not getting support. So what can we do? Mm -hmm. Maybe Pacific Islanders and Alaskan communities, together we probably can make a voice. Mm. Yeah. Just my thinking. <laughs> do we have any more questions from the crowd? I, just, I want to ask you both, um, do you feel, do either of you feel that you face <coughs> sexism in, um, in the work that you've done so far? Yeah, um, <coughs> I, I've faced a lot of challenges with um, men leaders in, in Bougainville because of the work I'm doing. Um, we, we have, um, like, for us in, in, in Bougainville, we, I, I come from a community that's matriarchal, um, but we have a lot of men in the public service, educated cartridge islanders in the public service, who have actually undermined the work that mm. um, the organization is doing in, in moving people. So it has also been a hindrance really big hindrance. And you think there's an element of sexis, sexism in the way that they've undermined you because mm -hmm. you're women leading a cause? Yeah, and I think it's to go 
it's got to do with um, ego and mm. status and... Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, Kathy, what do you think? Um, I, I mean, I've been in this game a little... I haven't been in this game as long as Ursula has, but I think my issue is... Um, I, I have had, like, disagreements with certain positions that um, some of our government leaders have taken, and I think that I've been dismissed because I'm... Because of my... Not just because of my gender, but also because of my age mm. and because of the fact that I'm seen as younger and I yeah. need to just, you know, stay back and listen. Um, but I think more of an issue that I've had to deal with in this work is, is being seen as a, as a token, kind of a, you know, here's the islander we're going to trot up yeah. to, to do something and perform for us. Now sit down so that we can talk about the real issues. Yeah. You know, and that's something that I, 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 I encounter a lot as a performance artist mm. and as a, you know, as a young woman. You know, mm. I'm, I'm, I, there's been so many situations where I'm the only young brown woman in mm. the entire room and they're like, yeah, speak to us about your islands, now get off the stage and mm. sit quietly. Mm. You know, and I think that's something that um, I struggle with in trying to figure out, you know, how do I speak to these issues and make sure these issues are heard, but how do I also feel empowered in these spaces? Yeah. Well, how do you stop yourself becoming the token Indigenous woman who's trotted out um, and then told to go away, as you said. Yeah, I think that for me, I've become a lot more conscious of what kinds of events I take part in, mm -hmm. um, and what kinds of event and and what what my role would be in those events. You know, if like this is obviously much more welcoming, and I feel you know, mm. like this is a woman's event, and I appreciate that, and I'm sharing it with Ursula, which which makes me feel more comfortable. Mm. Um, so I guess it's just about being conscious of yeah, where I put my time and where I put my energy. Yeah. Mm. I mean, do you think that there is um, uh, a racial element to the politics of climate change in the in the fact that? <laughs> oh, no, I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. The, because the people who are overwhelmingly um, badly affected at the moment mm -hmm. tend to be people, as you say, from developing world nations and mm -hmm. people who are indigenous and people of color. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, uh, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that perspective. Um, I think that. It's a lot of times where our voices are heard when it's convenient, mm. like um, you know, oh, we're gonna we're gonna have an indigenous women's um, you know side event that no one's gonna go to or hear, <laughs> you know. So that's before, before so yeah, the powerful white men. Yeah, go and, and then the they'll be in the real yeah. meetings, in yeah. the real issues, you know. And I think that can be a little bit frustrating, but. Um, but at the same time, I think that we create spaces all on our own sometimes, and those can be the most like you know, uh, islanders are coming together and they're and they're organizing together, and that can be really powerful. And so like I, I mentioned, like I didn't mention earlier, but I'm a part of 350 Pacific, which is uh, 350.org is you know that organization, international organization, but they have a Pacific chapter, and it's a bunch of youth grassroots organizers like myself from around the Pacific, and we we were a part of the COP23. And we did a lot of things that I felt really empowered about because we were the ones directing and figuring out how do we use our culture to bring, how do we bring our culture into these spaces while also get uplifting our own voices and the voices of our families and friends back home. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity there when we self-organize. Yeah. 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 And Ursula, do you think that there's a, a racist or, a, um, I don't know, even a classist element to the politics of climate change? I feel more comfortable um, in this festival because mm. I know it's all about women. Mm. And um, I, I, I don't feel the same when I, I go into the cops. Mm. Mm. Because uh, civil society are sidelined over there. Who cares? Mm. They can do their own thing there. Right, mm -hmm. right. 
and so you don't feel <clears throat> that you that you're given access to the sort of the people who are making the real decisions or the powerful mm. types. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think it's probably a good time now to ask Cathy to do her poem, which is going to round us out this afternoon, and I'm personally really looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you want to stand up here? Yeah, or? Sure, I'll Um, okay, so this is the poem that I wrote at, uh, for the United Nations when I was selected as a civil society speaker. They asked me to write a poem. Well, they literally said, write a poem that would change the world, which is like a tall order. <laughs> um, so it's not about that exactly, but it's a, I, I figured out I don't know how to speak to world leaders, I don't know how to speak to a movement, but I had just had my daughter who was seven months old at the time, and so I decided to write something to her about you know, my hope. Um, and so there's, there's a video that goes behind it, so that's going to, we can queue it up now. And her name is Dear Ismata Filipinum. Dear Mata Filipinum, you are a seven-month-old sunrise of gummy smiles. You are bald as an egg and bald as a Buddha. Your thighs that are thunder, shrieks that are lightning, so excited for bananas, hugs, and our morning walks along the lagoon. Dear Mata Filipinum, I want to tell you about that lagoon. That lucid, sleepy lagoon lounging against the sunrise. Men say that one day that lagoon will devour you. They say it will gnaw at the shorelines, chew at the roots of your breadfruit trees, gulp down rows of sea walls, and crunch through your island's shattered bones. They say you, your daughter, and your granddaughter too will wander, rootless, with only a passport to call home. Dear Mata Filipinum, don't cry. Mommy promises you no one will come and devour you. No greedy whale of a company sharking through political seas. No backwater bullying of businesses with broken morals. No blindfolded bureaucracy gonna push this mother ocean over the edge. No one's drowning, baby. No one's moving. No one's losing their homeland. No one's gonna become a climate change refugee. Or should I say, no one else. To the Carteret Islanders of Papua New Guinea and to the Taro Islanders of the Solomon Islands, I take this moment to apologize to you. We are drawing the line here because we, baby, are going to fight. <coughs> Mommy, Daddy, Bubu, Jumai, your country and your president too, we will all fight. And even though there are those hidden behind platinum titles who like to pretend that we don't exist, who likes to pretend that the Marshall Islands, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Maldives, Typhoon Haiyan, and the Philippines, the floods of Algeria, Colombia, Pakistan, and all the earthquakes and hurricanes and tidal waves didn't exist? Still, there are those who see us. Hands reaching out, fists raising up, banners unfurling, megaphones booming, and we are canoes blocking coasts. We are the radiance of solar villages. We are the fresh, clean soil of the farmer's past. We are petitions blooming from teenage fingertips. We are families biking, recycling, reusing, engineers dreaming, designing, building, artists painting, dancing, writing, and we are spreading the word. And there are thousands out on the street, marching hand in hand, chanting for change now, and they're marching for you, baby. They're marching for us because we deserve to do more than just survive. We deserve to thrive. Dear Mata Filipino, you are eyes heavy with drowsy weight. So 
just close those eyes and sleep in peace because we won't let you down. We'll see. Thank you. I've never performed that in front of a Carteret Islander before. <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic. It was really beautiful. And thank you so much for giving us that gift today. Um, thank you. It was really, really powerful. Mm. Um, I want to ask both of you, just in wrapping up... Um, if you have a closing message and one thing that you want us all to take away um, about your experience from today. Um, mm -hmm. Ursula? We just all have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Very succinctly put. <laughs> Let's get it done. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I, I definitely would f figure out a way to get involved in the local actions here in Australia because there's a lot going on from what I understand and um, there's a lot that everyone can do even if it's small things, yeah. Wonderful. Ladies, I just want to thank you both so much for t coming and travelling such a long way and for talking to us and, you know, giving us poetry and these amazing sort of messages. It's been incredibly interesting and enlightening for me and I hope for the, for the crowd as well. So thank you so much and thank you to the audience. We, um, we wish you all the best on your mission and we'll be watching. Thank you. That was Kathy Jetnell Kitchener with Ursula Rakova and Jacqueline Maley. And we return next week with one final talk from All About Women 2018. Hit that subscribe button and we'll catch you then. <laughs> <laughs>